The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Our scripture reading this morning is uh, from Romans 5, uh, verses 12 through 17, I believe. But before I uh, read, uh, kids, you are dismissed uh, for the children's church. So, scram, skedaddle. I'm kidding. Have fun. Um, so, uh, if you have your Bibles or if you want to look to the screen, uh, feel free. Again, we'll be in Romans 5, uh, verses 12 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses and even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by, his, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many, tre following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Brenda. Thank you, ladies. You guys can have a seat. I would encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 5. We're going to be there this morning. We're also going to be spending a reading from Hebrews 10 at a moment as well. If you are joining us for the first time, we're in the middle of a series um, on the Bible, Get Into the Word, and we are unapologetically uh, wanting to stir your hearts to read God's Word this season and this year. And so we are in the, uh, the, the third of the four sermons. Um, if you are just joining us, um, I hope that you will enjoy this, and this will make sense from picking up of where we are in the series. You can tell a lot about a person by the stories that they like. In fact, if I were to ask you what's your favorite story, it would tell me a lot about who you are and what you enjoy doing, whether it's comedy, whether it's history, whether it's a fairy tale, whether it's a murder mystery, it'll tell me about what kind of what stirs your heart. Stories are at the heart of what it means to be human. There are few mediums that captivate us as well as a well-told story. From the very beginning, I mean, the, 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 how Genesis was written was because stories were told from generation to generation where grandkids sitting on grandfather's knees and the grandfather saying, let me tell you about what happened in my life. It's, there's something that just captivates us and pulls us in. It entices us all. We want to lean into those well-told stories and say, ooh, what's going to happen? What's the punchline? When I was, as I was growing up, I hated spending time indoors. I hated spending time sitting still. I was that stereotypical, rambunctious boy that got his hands dirty and got into everything. And like, I had two speeds, on or off, 100% or fast asleep. And the last thing you could get me to do was to come inside and read a book. I was not that kid. Until somewhere around the age of 12, 
somebody gifted me this series, this book series that I fell in love with. And I read it, the series, not once, but three times. All of a sudden, the kid that wouldn't stay indoors, wouldn't sit still, was in his room voluntarily reading. My mom was like, who in the world is this person you are new? But the reason that I loved it was because unlike homework and unlike other tasks that we have to read out of duty and obligation that, that I perceived as torture, I... I was reading this because I was, I, I was passionate about it, because I loved it, because it was a story that I wanted to know more about. You see, the difference in the way that we can approach a story is so often, like with homework, we're mandated to do it. We are required to read it, and we don't really get much enjoyment out of that. But there's other times, like with that series that I had as a kid, I voluntarily pursued it out of passion. I sat in my room for hours on end reading this. In fact, I believe one of the worst ways to get somebody to love something is by forcing them to do it. Because if you do force them, they might do it, but they're only going to do it to the letter of the law. If you say, you got to read for one hour, I heard that sometimes as a kid, okay, I'm going to read for one hour. You just said the duration. You didn't, you didn't tell me how long I have to read, how much I have to read, how many chapters I have to read. Or if you said, you have to read one chapter, I'm about to be the fastest speed reader in the world. I mean, I can, I can navigate those laws because I can follow the letter of the law. But when we do something out of passion, it's not something that we're forced to do, something that we get to do. So I want to take something off the table for us this morning, I, I, and even for this series. And this might sound a little unchristian and definitely unpastorly, but I, I, in this series of Get Into the Word, I think it's, it's important for me to state this. You don't have to read the Bible to be a good Christian. I want that set there. You don't have to read the Bible to be a good Christian. Now, some of you right now are like, huh? I can't handle that. I know for me, growing up, I heard often... It was one of my mom's favorite sayings. Read your Bible, pray every day, and everything will go well with you. And she was well-meaning. But there's this idea that Bible reading, daily Bible reading, is at the heart of being a good Christian. Now, has anyone picked up the, the hypocrisy of me saying this statement with what we're doing in this whole series? And in fact, the hypocrisy of me saying this statement, and then in January 1, we passed out a Bible reading plan that would, is obligated or expects you to read the Bible on, on a daily basis. I recognize the hypocrisy there. But the reason that I have to say that you don't have to read the Bible to be a good Christian is because for 1,400 years following Christ, the command to read the Bible on a daily basis was something that you could not do. Because either you couldn't read, or you didn't have a Bible in your possession, or you didn't have an, an, an opportunity to read the Bible on a daily basis because you were working, and to top that all off, you really couldn't copy Bibles all that fast because the printing press hadn't been created yet. So if I'm going to say that the only way that you can be a good Christian is to read your Bible every day, then I have to take out 1,400 years of church history to say then those clearly weren't good Christians. But that's not what God calls us to, this daily Bible reading, in this pursuit of a resolution, in this command that we have to fulfill to be a good Christian. Now, I want to footnote some things because I don't want to lose you or lose my job. Um, so here's, here's these footnotes. 
Paul was very clear in his letters, especially to um, Timothy, that focusing on the word is paramount for believers. So I, I just want to read some sections. You can turn to Hebrews 10. That's going to be the, the last section that we are going to read. But 1 Timothy 4, 13 through 16 says this. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift which you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of the elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in these, for by doing so you will both save yourself and your hearers. Again, in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 2, says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. In Hebrews 10, we don't know the author of Hebrews, but in Hebrews 10 in the sermon, this is what the, the, the sermon writer declares to us in verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have this confidence to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he opened for us through a curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day draw near. Notice that all of these commands about staying close to the word, about preaching the word, about reading the word, are given in the context of the corporate gathering of the saints. Under no circumstances is the body of Christ called to gather for a worship service and the word of God not be opened and preached. I cannot tell you that you have that in order to be a good Christian you have to read the Bible every day but I can say that as elders and pastors and as a church we are called by God to focus our minds on the word of God when we gather together. We are corporately commanded to remind each other through the preaching of the word, through the songs that we sing, through the fellowship that we receive the grace and the law of God. But our daily Bible reading has never been a command that God has given to us. And so, I start with all of this because I want to remind all of us where we started this series, what I said in the very first part. We're going to uh, all come around. This is going to connect, I promise you. But I want to remind you of what I said in the very first sermon, that myself and the elders wholeheartedly believe that a personal focus towards the Word of God should be a consistent part of our spiritual lives and rhythms. Again, we wholeheartedly believe that a personal focus towards the Word of God should be a consistent part of our spiritual lives and rhythms. Now, once again, notice the wording here. A, spirit, that a consistent focus towards the Word of God. I didn't say reading, I didn't say memorizing, I didn't say studying. Those things are included in that, but focus is more than that. And rhythm, not resolution. Rhythm as the way that you do life, understanding that this sets your current in life. And this is why I truly believe that as believers, we need to have a constant focus on the Word of God. 
And this is also why I believe that as believers, we probably need a daily focus on the Word of God. Every morning when I wake up, I have, I used to use my phone as my alarm right beside my bed, but then it was an arm's length, so I just hit snooze a hundred times, so I had to move it into my bathroom. But every day I have to tell myself, don't look at your phone first. Don't let that be the first thing that um, feeds into you. I fail half the time. But the reason I have to tell myself that is because I know that through that phone, the thing that's closest to me the whole time, sitting over there on, 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 my, on my seat, is, is this bombardment of my soul with information and idols that constantly pull my eyes off of Christ. I know that the moment I walk out of my door and I start driving down the street, I, I know the moment I turn on the radio, I, I know the moment that the world gets to my ears and mind, I am going to be pulled from Christ and I'm going to be redirected in a hundred different directions. And what I know to be true is that the Word of God is that place that focuses my heart and my soul and my mind back to the consistent and to the true law of God. And so that's why we say that our heart is that you have a constant focus towards the Word of God. Now, here's what I want to do in this section of our series. And hear this appropriately. I don't want to guilt you. I don't want to stand up here and say, you should do this. I have one friend that says that we shouldn't should on people. So I don't want to should on you this morning because I hate when people should on me. It gets under my skin when they walk in and go, well, if you only knew this, you would do it this way. Or Ryan, if, 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 you, if, if, if you knew what I knew, you would do things differently. Or they say, Ryan, you should do it this way. I hate that. So instead of, again, shoulding on you, I want to appeal to you. I want to appeal to you through the means of a story. As I said, we all love the story, right? It's at our souls. It entices us all. It makes us lean in. Instead of guilting you into reading the Bible through a command, I want to entice you by telling you the story of the Bible. We open up the pages of Scripture every time that we come here to worship. And we do our best and try hard to always connect it back to the greater theme of the Bible, which is redemption. But a fact that's hiding in the wide open is that the Bible is first a story this is what we talked about last week. It's not for apologetics. It's not for theology. It's not for ethics. It's a story that declares to us what's happened to us. And so I want to unpack this story so that we can better understand what happened in this book. And therefore, we can better understand what happened in our own life. And I hope at the end of it that you will have a passion for reading it because you realize this is not somebody else's story. This is your story. Scripture is the story of how sinners can be offered hope. Scripture is the story that answers the question of how can we be good with God? It explains not only what God requires of us, but it also explains how God fulfilled those requirements. Some stories don't age well. I know, and especially in this political environment and this news cycle. I mean, it's like, wait, wait six months and one story that we were all celebrating is the thing that, that we're all torching. Some stories just do not go well. This story ages perfectly. See, the story of the Bible sounds the same to us as it did to every single individual found in Scripture. When you open up these pages of Scripture, you might have more information than some of these guys do. In fact, you do, especially if you're reading in Genesis and such. But it sounds the same 
It's a message of hope. It's an offering of reconciliation. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a description of what's happened to us. Because it's a story about how God, before the foundation of the world, determined to save us. It's a story about our reconciliation. Now, in order to understand any good story, you always got to start with the main characters, right? You got to know who the people are involved in. So allow me to give you a very um, a, a elementary view of this, but maybe one that you've lost sight of, maybe one you've never heard, maybe you've never seen it in this way. And so let me just offer you these main characters. The Bible is the story of two Adams. The first Adam, we know really well. The first Adam we feel in our bones. The first Adam is that Adam that we meet in the garden in Genesis 1 and 2. The Adam that was the, the, the first man created. And it is paramount to understand how the first Adam and the second Adam fit together. Now, when the first Adam was created in Genesis 1 and 2, he was given a very specific command. But he also had a very specific role to play. I'm going to use some theological words as we talk about this story. I don't want to lose you with it, but I think we have to understand the theology behind it because this is a story, but this is also understanding how God operates with mankind. That is the study of theology, understanding God. And so theologically speaking, this first Adam was our federal head, was our representative for us before God. What happened with Adam happens to us. And as our representative, God gave Adam a command. This was in Genesis 2. We know that Genesis 1 and 2 is the creation of, of the world. God created it in six days out of the breath of his mouth. Six days he, he uh, rested and said all was good. But in Genesis 2, we hear about God interacting with Adam. And it says this in verse 15 through 17. The Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you, sh you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Very simple. God placed Adam in the garden and said, listen, your job is to work this and to keep this. Your job is to name the animals. Your job is to, is to oversee this. And, and that way, God, as the creator of the world, is looking at his creature at, that, that is above all of his other creatures and saying, okay, man, it is your job to oversee this creation. But oh yeah, you see all these trees? You see all this produce? You see all this stuff that I've given you? You can eat of anything except that one. Adam goes, okay. And he goes about his, his business. Now again, just a little bit of theology. What we just read was the account of God making a covenant or a promise with Adam. This is, to, again, to use theological language, the covenant of works described. Now, to understand this covenant of works, we both have to understand the nature of God and the nature of Adam at this moment. God always works through covenants and promises with his creation from the very beginning. This is how God operates. God walked into Adam, into the garden and said, I'm going to promise you that if you obey my law, I'm going to give you eternal life. Now, Adam, could, he could fulfill that at that time. 
If God came into us right now and gave us that promise, we'd all be lost within a second because we can't. But Adam, he was created morally upright. God created Adam good. He was in a proper relationship with God. And he could obey God's commandments. He could obey God perfectly because he hadn't sinned against God. He could work the garden, keep the garden, and not eat from the tree of the good of, uh, of the tree of good and evil. See, God's standard has always been perfection because God's holy. God cannot stand sin. God cannot be in the presence of sin. God's holiness dictates that when sin is present, God's wrath has to be satisfied against that sin. This is the problem that we have. When Adam and, Adam and Eve were created good and, and they were sinful, this is why, or sinless, this is why they could walk, God could walk with them in the presence, in, in their presence and in the morning, whatever that verse is in Genesis, like in the, in the morning dew thing. He could, he could walk with them. Adam and Eve could be in the presence of God without fear and trembling. The standard was perfection, and any deviation from God's holy law was not acceptable. Again, you might think this standard was unnecessary or unimportant, but let's consider a couple realities. First, the creature has the obligation to obey the creator. And second, Adam being our federal representative for all of mankind, all of this was riding on him. He was our federal head. Adam was the legal representative of all of his posterity. The other way to say that is whatever happened with Adam happened to us all. Now, this is something, maybe this is the first time you've ever heard this. Maybe this is, you haven't heard of the covenant of works or this explanation. I want to tie this back to history just to let everyone know we're not crazy for thinking about this. This is how the London Baptist Confession describes it. This is the confession that we hold to here at the church. It's in chapter 19, paragraph 1. It says this, God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written in his heart and a particular precept of not eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, by which he bound him and all of his posterity, that's us, to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promise life upon the fulfilling and threaten death upon the breach of it and endued him with power and the ability to keep it. Translation of that, Adam had the ability to keep God's law and Adam had to. Now, we all know what happens in Genesis 3, right? Doesn't go so well. He doesn't keep God's law. He looks at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that very simple command. And I think the reason that we have that command in particular filled out from all in, any of the other commands, because I know people can say like, but there, there had to be more obligations given. There probably were. I mean, Adam and, and God were communing together. However that looks, that blows our mind. But this is the one we heard about because this is the one that was broken. Because Adam took the fruit and he ate it. Thus incurring guilt and condemnation for him and all of his descendants. And sin and death are now inherited and imputed attributes upon every descendant of Adam. Guess who that includes? Me and you. Because we are descendants of Adam. But in addition to sin and death, Adam lost access to God. 
He lost, he lost access from, from the garden, and he lost access from being able to walk around and commune with God. Why? Because God's holiness requires that sin is satisfied, or his wrath for his sin is satisfied. This is why Ephesians 2.12 says this, Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The presence of God, think about this. When Adam and Eve walked around in the garden and they heard God, again, how this goes down, I don't know. They heard God. That brought joy to their heart. It was a God's here. Let's go talk with God. Let's go commune with our creator. Let's go worship him and say, look at all the beautiful things that you've created. That brought joy to their heart. Think about the first action that they had the moment that there was sin. They hid themselves out of fear and shame. Think about the other stories in Scripture that we hear when people come before the holy and living God, like Exodus 20. Moses goes up to the mountain. What's the command that he gives to Israel? No one or no thing can touch the mountain. And if they do touch the mountain, they're going to die. My first question is, how do you tell where a mountain starts and stops? That's a whole other thing. Think about Isaiah in the garden, or in, in, in the temple when he is ushered up into heaven. What's he do? He falls flat on his face and goes, I am unworthy. I should not be here. The, 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 the joy and the communion that mankind had with their creator was completely lost. And now it's just fear and dread. And Adam left mankind in a desperate state. That's the state that we live in. That's the state that has been there since Genesis 3. That's the state that we read about in Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. That's all of this story is describing this state of being separated from God, of trying to, to live for him, and yet having our, our, our minds um, and, 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 our, and our souls just diluted with the truth and being torn away from God until the second Adam shows up. Like I said, the story is a story of two Adams. The second Adam took a long time, but the second Adam was promised from the very beginning. Genesis 3.15, the first gospel. God told Eve, I'm going to send you a son that's going to crush the head of the serpent. And Eve took that promise in her heart and said, okay, somebody is coming that's going to reconcile this separation that we have with God. Imagine being kicked out of the garden, seeing that cherubim standing there with that sword and thinking, I want back in there. And Eve is thinking to herself, one day I'm going to give birth to a son that's going to allow me to walk back in that place. Well, generation after generation, that promise remains. Just this morning, I was reading... In the Bible reading plan, I am doing it. I am behind. I'm a day behind. I got to catch up. Keep missing days and catching up. But I'm reading in, in about Isaac. And it's not lost on me. No, Jacob. It's not lost on me that Abraham gets the promise. But then Isaac gets the same promise when he needs that promise. And then Jacob gets that promise. And over and over and over again, these generations are being reminded of, I'm going to send somebody that's going to allow you to be in my presence once again. And we get to the second Adam. The second Adam was truly man. He was born of a woman, Mary. Therefore, he had the ability to fulfill what the first Adam could not. 
He was once again a true man set on earth that had the ability to fulfill that first command that God gave Adam. Obey my law and keep it perfectly. But he was also truly God because he didn't have the guilt of sin that is imputed to all of us through the line of our fathers because he wasn't born of man. He wasn't born from the seed of man. He didn't have that guilt that was put upon his soul that Adam kept passing down to all of his kids so Eve could say, this is my son. And yet God could say, yes, but he's once again created in the state that he was designed to be created in sinless. The second Adam was now on earth and he was able to fulfill God's law and earn what was lost in the first Adam. This man had the ability to finally offer hope. This man, as Hebrews 10 says, was able to fulfill the law. And as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15, he puts these story of the two Adams together and it says this, for as by one man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in the second Adam, Christ, all shall be made alive. Now, I'm a pastor at heart. I'm a preacher at heart. It's hard for me to get away from the, from the Bible. So even in this series, as we're looking at an overview, I've got to land in the text of Scripture. And that's going to be Romans 5 for us this morning. So if you would turn to Romans 5, we're going to unpack this quickly. There's a lot in here we're not going to touch. Um, and so you might have some questions that you say, what does that mean? I'm sure we'll get back to Romans 5 one day. I just want to read it once again. Because this is Paul describing the story of two Adams to these Romans. This is him reminding them about the story that, that connects us all, that's, that's been happening since the very beginning. And this is how Paul words it. Once again, 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all Sinned. We're going to get back to that part in a minute. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, but was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned, though that one man much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. I want to walk through these verses rather quickly, but pull out some insights of essentially the story that I just told you in long form is what Paul is describing here. Notice where he begins by highlighting that federal head, that representative, where it says in verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Do you know that you're held guilty before God first and foremost because your grandfather Adam sinned, not because of your particular sins. That's why when David 
when he's writing and goes, from my mother's womb, I'm a sinner. Because he understands the ultimate guilt, the ultimate problem that we have is not my personal sin. I mean, yes, that does, creates a separation. But ultimately, it's the guilt that Adam, as my federal representative, gave me. Because the entire race, when God looks at the entire race, he goes, they're all separated from me. They're all sinners. They all need to be condemned. This is this federal head language. Because this guy, who was your representative, failed. Everyone underneath also fails. Now, I know some of you right now, because I want to footnote this already. I'm going to wait. Because... If you want, if you're going to struggle with that, you're going to struggle with Christ as well. But okay, 13 and 14. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, but was a type of the one who was to come. The law of God and our guilt with God is greater than any book or written code. Essentially was what that's saying. It's a part of the fabric and the DNA of of what it is to have a connection with our creator. As his creatures, when he creates us, when he created this world, he created us to operate and to interact with him in a very specific way. It's part of the very fabric between us and him. And so when that contract, when that covenant, when that promise was broken, again, in Adam, that separation took place. Verse 15. But the free gift. Now there's a change in tone here. But the free gift, what is this free gift? Was not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass... Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. We have to talk about, some theolo- again, some, some more theological language because I brought up the covenant of works. But there's another covenant that's operating here. It's a covenant of grace. That's why, notice how often this is free gift What's a free gift? Well, free gift is grace. What's free gift? Free gift is something that you don't earn, but you receive. A free gift is the exact opposite, as far away from works as you possibly can get. If Adam is saying, do this and live, which is what the covenant of works is, God is saying, receive. Have it declared upon you, have it given to you, because you didn't do anything Because of it, this is a free gift. So we are offered this new covenant, this new contract, this new promise, but instead of a do this and live type covenant, it's to receive this and be free. Because this gift, this grace is offered to us not through our works, but through Christ, which is what we can see in 16. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. The covenant of grace is different from the covenant of works. Because in the covenant of works, we're held liable for what we did. Our representative did it first, but we are held liable for what we did. In the covenant of grace, we're held liable. We use the same language. 
for what somebody else did, for what Christ did. That's what's wrapped up here in this language of justification, being declared righteous. We're not righteous. We're declared righteous. The righteousness of somebody else, the righteousness of Christ. And in this justification, he goes, we're going to give you this gift, not from what you've done, but from what he has done. I want to quote again from the London Baptist Confession. It says this, moreover, this is the part of the, of the covenant of grace. Moreover, man having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace, whereby he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by good works. No, by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those who have ordained into eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. Let's just state that in plain language. God sent somebody to fulfill what was lost in Adam and then to offer us the reward that was received because of his obedience. Jesus did what Adam couldn't do. But Jesus received what Adam didn't get. That is, the ability to come before the Lord and be reconciled to him. The ability to have that relationship that we were created to have. Jesus could have come to earth, lived that life, and kept it all for himself. That's what man's supposed to do. He's supposed to live this way. But no, he became our savior. He became our advocate. He became our Lord. And he offered us the righteousness that he earned, that no one helped him with, and everyone tried to pull him away from, that he earned to you and I. And the only way that we get that, the only way, is by faith. And you might go, well, isn't that a work? No, it's not a work. Because faith isn't anything that I do. Faith is literally me saying, I'm going to trust that Christ was the person that God promised in Genesis 3.15. I'm going to trust that when God looks at me, he doesn't see my condemnation that I got from Adam and every day that I live in my own sin, but he's going to see God's righteousness or Christ's righteousness that was imputed and declared to me so that when God sees me, he doesn't see the dirty, rotten sinner that I physically am in this body of death, but he sees the, the righteousness that Christ has imputed and given to me through faith. You see, behind the story of the two Adams is the doctrine of imputation. In the doctrine of imputation, it's a Latin word, and it simply means to apply to one's account. And imputation cannot go unnoticed in Scripture. We first see this in the Garden with Adam. We see it continued in the sacrificial lamb at the Passover, and we see that it concludes with Christ. Our standing before God has always been based upon the consequences of somebody else. And you know when I said earlier that when you hear about us being condemned about the guilt of Adam, that can, you know, make our souls kind of crinkle up and be like, I don't want to be, uh, you know, uh, held responsible for somebody else's actions. Well, if you don't want to be held responsible for somebody else's actions, you, don't, you also can't take the privilege of being held responsible for Christ's actions. Because that's the thing. Yeah, I got to take Adam, but I also get Christ because God works through imputation. Oh dear, I'm at the end and I've got several more pages to go. I, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.12. This is imputation language repackaged for our sake. I love that it starts this way. For our sake. Not for God's sake, 
for our sake, out of love and care and, and compassion for us. That's not in the text, that's me. For our sake, he made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. This is imputation happening with us. My sin is imputed to him. So that when God looks at Christ on the cross, he doesn't see the righteousness that Christ has earned. He doesn't see the perfection that he has. He sees my sin imputed to him. He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the story that we're talking about. That's this book that we get to read. That Action, that verse, that very simple phrase that Paul boiled down is describing for us how in the world that can be true. Because I will tell you, if Jesus gave that sentence, where'd it go? I don't know where it went. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Man, that really skipped. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Think for a moment if God told Eve that. What do you think she would have done? She would have had a giant, huh? That makes no sense. It's the beauty of the Bible. It's this unfolding story, this progression of taking us from this small promise that we have in the garden to this beautiful picture of Christ. And we see all these types and shadows in the Old Testament. You know, I've, I've often thought and questioned, why did it take God so long to send the Messiah? Why, why did he allow so much garbage to happen in the Old Testament? Why so many broken lives and broken homes and pain and suffering before Christ finally came? Why? And here is the only answer that I can put to this, because it would take us as humans that long and it would take that many stories and that many lives and that many illustrations and that many types and shadows for us to understand the magnitude of who Christ is. Because I will tell you that what we've been doing as New Testament believers since Christ ascended to heaven was looking at Christ who we saw for three and a half years in this ministry and realizing how he is the, is, is the full fulfillment of all the types and shadows in the Old Testament. But if you just gave us Christ, he is enough, but I don't think we would fully understand the depth of who he is without the Old Testament. And if we just had the Old Testament in Christ, we'd be sitting around scratching our head going, how do these things connect? And so what do we have? We have the New Testament where Paul and Peter and John and James and the rest of these New Testament writers sit down and go, let me tell you how Christ fulfills all of that. Let me tell you, let me tell you how Christ offers you hope because of that. It's the story of us as a human, as people that living in this broken and dark world. It's the story of these two atoms. Our Christian lives are all about these two atoms. Luther famously said that we are both saint and sinner. Adam number one is that sinner inside all of us. That body of death that we live in, the reason that my soul, it's the Roman seven, the things I don't want to do, I do, and the things I do want to do, I don't do that. Tugging at my soul. That's the first Adam in us. But we're a saint. Because when Christ looks at us in him, he does not see our brokenness. He sees Christ's righteousness declared and imputed to us. 
as we transition to communion, this is a moment where imputation is declared to us each week. That's, Christ was giving a lesson on imputation in the upper room. This is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. This is my blood poured out for you. Drink this in remembrance of me. He is saying, what I am about to do, I'm going to give to you. That's imputation language. And so as we approach this table as we do each week, it's so easy for us to think this is a check the box thing that I have to do moment. But it's not. This is a moment when we can be reminded it has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with him. That the reason that we can sit here, if you're a believer in Christ and rest in your salvation, has nothing to do with you. Christ didn't get you 99% of the way there and then you're gonna get 100% of the way there. No, he declared you righteous. Righteous is not a sliding scale of righteousness. Righteous is all or nothing. He declared you righteous. So if you are a believer here this morning and, and, and we would invite you to take this table with us and remind yourself, be reminded by these elements that all that you need is found in Christ. If you're here for the first time, maybe a friend brought you, maybe you just walked in these doors for the first time and you, 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 you don't know Christ, you haven't placed your faith in him, all of this is new, you're still you know, wondering, struggling with this, first welcome, we're so thankful that you're here. But I would ask that you let these elements pass you by because we don't want them to confuse you. We don't take these elements to fill us up in Christ because we're completely full in Christ. We take these elements to remind us of what he has done. I would also ask after the service, if you fit that need, where you're, you're questioning, you're, you're longing, you're looking, you're, you're wondering what's happening here, come find me. Because I would be excited to talk more about Christ with you and to tell you how you can stop trying and start resting in his finished work. Let's pray and we can take this together. Lord, thank you for your word, for the story of the gospel, for the tale of two Adams. Lord, thank you that we can be here today and we don't look to our own good deeds, but we look to you. Thank you that we can sit here and maybe even if our week was going poorly, we can sit here and we can take this table together and be reminded to look outside of ourselves at the finished work of Christ. Lord, help this moment to be a moment of encouragement. Help this moment to, to, to allow us to fix our eyes on you. Lord, use the sacrament that we are about to take together to bring us hope and grace in the finished work of Christ. In your son's name, amen.
Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.